the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, you'll hear from Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times, who recently made a road trip to Portleash to visit Irish recycling company Trifol. Led by Chief Executive Patrick Alley, Trifol recycles nasty plastic into a more environmentally friendly wax product that has multiple uses. You'll also hear from Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, who will bring us a preview of what to expect in next week's budget. But I'm going to start with a roundup of some of the main business stories of the week, and I'm joined by Laura Slattery of the Irish Times. Laura, you're very welcome. Um, now, we're going to uh, begin with a big corporate deal, which was announced this morning. Flutter, uh, known otherwise as Paddy Power, and Betfair has announced a very, very big deal. That's right. It's a mega merger in the gaming space, and um, they have agreed a merger with the Stars Group. It's a Canadian company, but uh, quite significantly, they are the owner of a brand that's big in the US called uh, Poker Stars. And this, if it goes ahead, will create the biggest online gambling firm in the world. And um, you know, it's it's a huge, huge deal. And it can be said to be uh, very attractive for Flutter's shareholders because, uh, you know, they'll end up with almost 55% of the combined business. And it's, uh, as I said, it gives them opportunities to really make inroads into the US market. At the moment, about half their revenues come from the UK, um, where there's been a bit of a crackdown on certain types of gambling of late. So they're looking for a new market. They think this is the way forward. Yeah, and there's going to be a strong influence at the top of the business uh, in Ireland, isn't there? Uh, Peter Jackson, who's the chief executive of Flutter at the minute, and Gary McGann, uh, who many people might remember from Smurfit Kappa, uh, he's going to continue as chairman. That's right. They'll uh, keep the, keep their same roles in this uh, enlarged group. Um, so, yeah, it gives a, a Dublin-based company an awful lot of power in this particular sector. Um, their shares have reacted very positively today. They're up uh, about 8% last time I checked. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly, certainly the shareholders are going to want it to go through. Whether competition regulators will feel the same way remains to be seen. Mm. Now, people might be familiar with Full Tilt, Poker Stars and Sky Bet if they watch snooker, because uh, a lot of these are sponsors of uh, some of the big snooker players on the circuit. So those brands might have awareness already in the Irish market. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they, they they certainly will do a lot of this kind of in play betting is is sort of part of the where they get their sort of big revenues from. Um, last time I watched snooker, it was being sponsored by Embassy, but of course they had to uh, get out of the game when they changed the rules on tobacco sponsorships. But yeah, yeah, still. The well, it would be interesting to see if they change the rules around well, gambling yeah. as well, because that's very much in the crosshairs of policymakers in the UK and Ireland at the minute. And. Actually, you know, there's people who say it's not really very healthy for a lot of sports. And of course, it is financially healthy because those uh, companies are willing to pay big money for their sponsorships. But mm. uh, it causes all kinds of problems well, uh, to do with in, in, so integrity. Forth, yeah. and, and, you know, I wouldn't want to pick on snooker, but certainly across the, across the board, that's been the case. Um, and so as it stands, though, this, this deal is so big, there's going to be, you know, so much attention and scrutiny on it, um, not just in the UK, but, you know, possibly in the US, although they're still sort of warming up when this market is concerned. Canada, Australia as well, there'll be uh, regulators looking at this. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a big surprise move this morning. Yeah, now another big company that surprised us all this morning was Tesco. Uh, it announced that Dave Lewis is stepping down as chief executive. He's been involved in the turnaround of that company over the past uh, few years. And he's going to be replaced by a little-known Irishman called Ken Murphy. 
That's right. Now, Dave Lewis, uh, who's uh, known by the name uh, Drastic Dave Lewis, I think that goes back to before he joined Tesco from Unilever. Um, but he's gen- generally seen as quite a successful, you know, from shareholders' point of view, he's quite successful at, as chief executive of Tesco for the past five years because he's helped them turn around the business. And, OK, they had a, 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 an accounting scandal and a couple of other hiccups, but it, he's, he seemed to have dealt with them in quite a deft manner. Uh, so his resignation is a surprise. He's 54. He apparently wants to spend a bit more time with his family before maybe, you know, taking on a slightly less uh, high pressured uh, corporate job. Um, So he's out the door and the surprise man in the door is Ken Murphy. So who is Ken Murphy? (laughs) Exactly. Um, There's a a retail analyst called Nick Bubb who uh, in his note today referred to him as Ken Who. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people are asking that very question. We know he's from Cork. <laughs> um, we have secured yeah. a photograph of this gentleman, uh, um, which is not easy to come by. We, we understand he had a Christian Brothers education that he went to UCC. He went on to Harvard Business School. He's yeah. a very well educated man. And, um, you know, he uh, understand as well. I don't know the full details that he, his first job was in his dad's shop in Cork. So if anyone in Cork is listening, let any, if anybody knows any the Murphy's shop in Cork, let us. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Please do I'm contact told that us. might be a little bit difficult to <laughs> narrow down, judging from the number of nerfies in Cork. But um, we we know one of his first positions was at the pharma uh, company Unichem, and in fact he, he managed its Italian operation at one point. And they became part of Alliance Unichem, and then they were uh, Alliance Boots. Um, so he was really a, he, he's a boots man. He his a lot of his retail experience comes from the chemist chain, and his most recent job for that group was chief commercial officer for what's now the Walgreen Boots Alliance, a really big US company. And he was working in the US until I think the start of this year. He still works for them as a consultant, but he he moved back to the UK again, I think for family reasons. Um, And uh, he's a surprise external appointment. Yeah. So are they going from Drastic Dave to Crafty Ken? Oh, well, that's, uh, that's well, getting back to snooker there, aren't we? <laughs> Crafty Ken. Um, Ken, yeah. Ken Darty, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, uh, he, uh, he, he is apparently, according to Tesco boss, uh, John, sorry, I should say Tesco chairman, just distinguish John Allen, that he's the right person for the job. So that's an old time will tell one, isn't it? I mean, Tesco's woes haven't been completely solved. They are the market leader in the UK. Um, in terms of uh, supermarket sales, but there's a lot of people nipping at their heels. Aldi, Lidl, a whole lot of uh, different mm. competitors. Uh, consumer sentiment in the UK, as we know, is a little bit fragile at the moment because of Brexit. Um, that hopefully that you know it could be solved by the time Ken gets in the door because um, Dave uh, Lewis, is, is, I think, is staying on till roughly um, next summer, or certainly Ken Murphy isn't starting until next summer. So um, uh, there may be a few hiccups ironed out between now and then. Um, but it's uh, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, which is he's okay. A bit like Jeremy senior. Corbyn, uh, he's going to be hoping that Brexit is sorted by the time I'd say he will, before he gets a crack to at the top with job. Any stockpiles, there's enough issues as, as there is in, in, in the Tesco. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now the Lion King. Uh, we all, anybody who's seen the Lion King either on screen or uh, in the theaters, um, well, I think you'd have to be impressed. You'd have to enjoy it, wouldn't you? And turns out it's very popular at the box office in Ireland. Yeah, I must confess, I've seen neither the 1994 version of the Lion King nor the 2019 version. Oh, of Lord, the Lion you don't know King. what you're missing out on. Well, it's just the circle of life has taken me out of this particular loop. I have to say the theatre production in particular, I saw it in London uh, some years ago, and it's an incredibly impressive uh, performance. Uh, The level, I mean, you wonder how they're going to recreate, uh, you know, a jungle full of animals and so forth. They do really, really well. 
Well, um, they've spent about $260 million on this particular film version that came out in July, uh, directed by John Favreau and had uh, Donald Glover, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Beyonce uh, lending their voices to it. And it's in the news this week because it has become the uh, box office leader in the Republic for this year. And that's actually really interesting because it's overtaken Avengers Endgame, Mm. um, which on a worldwide basis is the highest grossing movie of all time. So Avengers is the top movie ever internationally. But in Ireland, it looks like it's not even going to be the number one for 2019. Well, we've always been a bit contrary in this country, haven't we? Have you have you seen <laughs> Avengers? I haven't seen this particular Avengers Endgame. I got a bit, uh, uh, I got a bit lost along the way with all the different installments, and there were so many different uh, plot uh, things happening. And I think there was 19 connected films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as they call it, uh, that I sort of lost track along the way. So yeah, I'm totally um, out of this particular uh, game as well. Um, but uh, you know, Avengers Endgame. It's 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 also been very popular here. It should be said. It's yeah. it's, it's six point four million. When the Lion King is six point four four million, that, and that puts those films fourth and fifth in the all time Republic box office. Uh, Avatar still out ahead here, um, and it's all really good news for Disney because it made both of those films. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's made almost you know four and a half of the top five films in this year's box office charge for the UK for Ireland uh, are Disney movies Alright well I haven't seen either movie so maybe I'll, I'll pop along to a cinema and take in one of those Laura Slattery thank you for joining us Thanks We're going to talk recycling now and Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times recently made a road trip to Portleash to visit Irish recycling company Trifall It hit the headlines recently it's led by Chief Executive Patrick Alley and it recycles nasty plastic into a more environmentally friendly wax product that has multiple uses Here's Peter's report We're looking at a mound of Oh. It looks like recycled drinks cartons to some extent, yeah. recycled bags. Piles of colourful shredded plastic lie on the floor of Patrick Alley's factory in a nondescript industrial estate just outside Port Leash. For most people, it's nothing more than a pile of rubbish. It's a fluffy product. A fluffy mound of plastic. But for Patrick, this unwanted trash is the key to his company, Trifold. Within our everyday lives, plastic just appears and disappears. But in reality, it doesn't. And this is where Trifold comes into play. 350 million tonnes of plastic are produced every year and just 9% of that is recovered or recycled. Disposing of the rest is polluting and pricey. And recently, getting rid of plastic has become even more difficult. China has banned most types of low-grade recycling products this year, leaving scrap to pile up. China's ban on waste imports has presented Western countries with a costly and dirty problem as the plastic piles up. So what are we doing with it all? The waste industry now uh, globally has um, an issue with the disposal of waste plastics. How do they best dispose of them? The, the, the available options are very narrow. So where does Trifold come in? Using technology developed by researchers at Queen's University Belfast, Patrick and his team of engineers in Port Leash convert plastic waste into a type of wax that is used in industry. In the office where we're talking, he shows me some small jars of a white, creamy substance. It doesn't look like much, but Patrick explains it turns up in a lot of different places. Uses. Industrial, for example, 8% of tyre production is wax. The dashboard on your car... The, uh, 
the manufacture of the body of an airplane, um, all contain a significant amount of wax. And then you move on to, um, let's say, food-grade wax. Take an ordinary cupcake, uh, a muffin, and if you look at the inside of that when it's emptied, it's wax-based. Wax and that's for two reasons. One is to preserve the product, and secondly, anti-stick. Right? All the fruit ships of the world that take unripened fruit but ripen during their journey, they're all sprayed with wax. And if you move on to cosmetic grade, now cosmetic grade is the one which I'm fascinated because if you take it that five years ago when I got into this business and um, I was convinced that I should go the wax route, I always thought the wax came from bees. It doesn't come from bees, it comes from the oil industry. So if you take cosmetics, you take lipsticks, facial cream, Botox, all of that family of product, that contains anything from 10% up to about 35% wax. So if the ladies of the world knew that the, um, the facial cream they were rubbing into their face uh, contained a product coming out of the oil industry, I don't think they'd be overly pleased. How much waste plastic can you take out of the system per year? In Ireland, if we built a new plant here, we could take uh, all of the jazz, nearly all of the jazz. And with this plant? This plant is very small. This plant is, is really a, a benchmark plant. We start off on phase one with 4,000 tonnes, then we add on in phase two, which we'll have completed within the next couple of weeks. Then we move into phase two, which will cost us about 5 million. When that is completed, we will then have a benchmark plant uh, of 10,000 tonne plus that we can replicate anywhere around the globe, anywhere. In other words, to get it in modules of 10. So if you wanted a 100,000 tonne plant, we'll give you 10 modules. I'm interested to know how this idea came to you or were you a naturally environmentally friendly person or is this very much a business opportunity given, uh, the, given the times? My background is totally different. I'm not a technologist. I'm a former accountant. I spent 20 years with Lambia and I spent about another uh, 10 then in the waste industry um, and, and spent about five in other industries. Uh, I have a great interest in the environment but my... Um, my love for plastics is driven by total commercialism. Um, so it is a marriage between uh, satisfying the environmental, uh, which I think most people, I, I haven't met a person yet who, who, is not, who, who would not like to see a solution for plastics environmentally. So that we are driven by that, yes. But it, it is married and very much married in with the commercial outturn. And while this is very much commercial business for you, surely other people are starting to take notice, like governments, for example, because this is a helpful solution to the issue at hand. Absolutely. We would love the government to get interested, but um, uh, governments, by their nature, talk an awful lot, but act, do not act as quickly as they talk. You know? um, uh, have you had any interaction from the Department of the Environment? We've made two grant applications last year for support from the Irish government, and from the EU, and we were successful with neither of them, to our great surprise, because we ticked every single box that was possible on the environmental side and on the commercial side. But we won't give up. We have to try again and keep on trying until hopefully we will be successful. Despite the lack of state support, Patrick plans to invest more in the company's future. He says he has already spent five million and will spend another five million developing a scaled-up plant. We have no revenue yet, so we have no revenue line yet. So it's not for the faint-hearted, you know, and it takes years of... Um, there's nobody 
that will say even if they were to copy our patents or to, to modify them or do whatever they want to do and get into this business, it's not an easy business. It's highly capital intensive. It'll take years before people, we're years ahead of the curve now in my view. And what's the five-year goal for this company? Is to develop, out, to have a global outreach in building new plants as quickly as we can to market. And in revenue terms? Extraordinary. Right. And back on the factory floor, Patrick is showing me how diesel fuel, that is a byproduct of the wax production process, is fed back into the system to power the plant. This what? is like a, a very sophisticated compost toilet. Like it takes this awful material mm. and makes it something that is much better. But along the way, you, you, you use everything that comes off of that to power your own plant. Yeah, correct. Correct, yes. yes. Um, and a lot of companies, particularly in the, the large corporate companies, like to be able to tick their corporate social responsibility boxes mm. as to say, we produce waste plastics and here is where it ended up. That was Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times visiting Trifalls Recycling Facility in Port Leash. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking about the budget to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, next Tuesday, Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue will deliver Budget 2020. He's flagged that there will be no income tax cuts. Instead, it'll be a budget designed to insulate the economy against the worst effects of a no-deal Brexit. But with an election on the horizon, will there also be some sweeteners for voters? Leo Varadkar appears to be offering that prospect, or will it simply be a bore fest? Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times joins me in studio to give us his predictions of what might be in Pascal Donoghue's plan. And I can assure you that this segment of the show will be no bore fest. Uh, Cliff... Ah. Tell us what's going to be in Pascal's budget. Well, I think the really interesting thing to watch in this budget is how he deals with the with the Brexit issue. Because we've been hearing in the last few budgets that, uh, you know, X, Y and Z has been happening because of Brexit and we're trying to Brexit-proof the economy. But now with the possibility of a no-deal Brexit just a few weeks away, uh, the minister has to, you know, to some extent put his money where his mouth is. Um, so walk us through his likely options. Yeah. What's going to happen is he's going to put a very large sum of money aside to deal with the shock of a no-deal Brexit. Now, what we don't know, and that could be, you know, three, three, four billion. Up to this is in addition billion. to the rainy day fund? He may take some of the rainy day fund. Which is what, about two billion? Yeah, uh, he may take some of the rainy day fund to help fund that, if you like, to help pay for that, or as a contingency to pay for it. Uh, he hasn't made that entirely clear yet. He's kind, of, he's kind of fudged that. That's one of the things to look out for on Budget Day. He's also said that he's willing to let the budget go into the red next year. So Deficit territory. Deficit territory. So no no-deal budget, you know, normal if normal business continues. So more borrowing? If some kind of deal is done, then we're, we're in surplus. But if uh, if it's an ODL budget and we're ready for that, then, then as you say, more borrowing, we go into deficit, maybe 1% to 1.5% of GDP. So you could be talking about fairly sizable amounts of money. So Just explain to us what kind of measures he could put in place to so-called Brexit-proof the economy. And I think this is probably the fourth budget yeah. where, you know, they've been saying, well, we're going to Brexit-proof the economy, etc. Uh, it's, it's an intangible concept almost. It is, yeah. And, and I suppose what happened in previous budgets were kind of measures to try and help companies get ready, to try and help them div- diversify their export markets, to invest in new technology, new markets, loan schemes and the like. 
one of the problems is businesses have been slow to take up those because they don't know what's going to happen. Uh, there's been uncertainty mm. and companies don't want to take on more borrowing. So what we're going to see, I think, in the actual event of an ODA Brexit is much more direct intervention. One of the things that um, businesses and unions are both calling for are some kind of measures to, to keep people in employment uh, in companies even in the event of an ODL Brexit. So, for example, somebody working for, I don't know, a beef processor, an engineering company, hit by an ODL Brexit, uh, there might be some arrangement whereby they might go from a, a normal working week at the moment to a two-day week for a period of time and the exchequer might make up the shortfall in, in, in their wages. So, so they're the kind of things we're talking about. Really, I guess, practical, hands-on-the-ground measures that are needed to keep people in work while we see how the first kind of few it's months... Tricky, isn't it, though? Because... Uh, you might have small companies out there who aren't yeah. directly impacted by Brexit who say, you know, we're living a hand-to-mouth existence. Absolutely. We could do with that kind of help as well. Thank it's you very a, much. It's exceptionally tricky. And one of the things the government has to do is to get around or to get approval under EU state aid regulations, which is designed to address that very thing, you know, fairness across the board. So we don't know exactly how the rules are going to be drawn up Uh when they're going to be put in place and how they will operate. Will there be more money for the ports? Will there be more money for the guards, let's say, for border duty or the army uh, for potential uh, border duty? What about the revenue commissioners? Do they get extra resources? I I, I think all those frontline agencies will will get a pot of extra resources, either to be spent or a contingency. Uh, Like we saw over the last few days, fleets of uh, customs cars being delivered up near the border, the guards, yeah. um, you know, which one presumes uh, are, are, you know, to police the border in the event of, a, of, of an ODL Brexit and to try and control smuggling. So, you know, these things are being put in place. And yes, that will be the case. And the other thing will be looking for EU funding, uh, which the government may have to match in, in some areas to support areas like like farming, which could be hit, uh, which obviously would be hit very very hard, particularly the beef sector. Yeah, let's take a break for a moment because Boris sure. made a speech to the Tory conference uh, earlier. We still don't have the full details of his plan, uh, his proposal to the European Union, but I think we have a fair idea. J- just published, actually. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, again, as walk as us advertised. through that plan. Yeah, just published and, and, and largely as advertised. So, what what uh, Boris Johnson has suggested are, is is a two phase, a two phase uh, program, if you like. Uh, so there are two there are two problems with the Irish border after after Brexit. Uh, if we assume that the UK is going to leave the EU trading bloc and go off sail off, do trade deals with Donald Trump or whatever. Checks are needed for two things. One are for customs duties to make sure tariffs are paid, to make sure VAT is paid, and to make sure goods are coming from where they say they're coming from, rules of origin. So that's one set of checks. The other set of checks are t- is, to, is to make sure uh, that goods uh, and animals crossing the border and foodstuffs meet regulations and are safe. Uh, obviously, particularly important. Regulatory alignment, I think they call it. Absolutely, particularly important for uh, for, for, for cattle and, and particularly important on the border where you know milk goes one way, beef goes the other, huge interchanges every day. So I, I guess the way... Boris Johnson is suggesting that we get around the regulatory problem is that the island of Ireland would be one regulatory zone uh, so that goods could move north to south without any difficulties. That includes um, animals, it includes foodstuffs, and it now includes manufactured goods as well. So the north would effectively take EU regulations 
as needed to, to, to maintain a free border in, in all these areas. A welcome proposal from the Irish point of view, but, but there's a but. And the but is that the proposal says that after four years, the Stormont Assembly would have a would have a vote on that and would be able to revert to UK rules if, if it so chooses. A little unclear for the proposals about exactly how that vote might work. Uh, the we way don't have a Stormont uh, Assembly uh, at the minute. So a small problem. It presumes that there will be one in place in it four does, years' time. Yeah. And the way Storm works at the moment would give either side the right to, to block a proposal like that. You know, so for example, the, DU, the DUP might be able to exercise something like a veto on this. Now, we don't know exactly how that might work yet, but that obviously is a problem and it's a time-limited issue that the Irish government would like. has shown no interest in Absolutely. Debate. Now, the other part of the proposal then is, is, a, is, a, is a customs plan so that Boris Johnson is saying that uh, the North... Uh, would remain in a customs union with the United Kingdom and that would be separate from the EU customs union. So that would require checks checks on goods crossing the border. He is saying that those checks can be done at customers' premises, they can be done using technology, uh, they can be done using a kind of advanced processes where companies pre-register stuff online beforehand and that you don't need physical infrastructure at the border. I'd be very surprised if the EU side were to agree to that because... They'll want to protect the single market. They'll want to monitor goods coming in and out. At very least, I can't see how you do that without uh, camera facilities, without mobile patrols, without some infrastructure. Perhaps not on the border itself. But 10 but or 12 miles away. Whatever. Something yeah, like that, yeah, whatever. So, you know, back to the old days, pre-1993, mm. where, you know, trucks were pulled in. Yeah. At now, sure, these uh, proposals actually leaked out last night. They did. And there was a... A negative response, not an official response, but a, a yeah. negative response coming from the European Union. Yeah, the next thing to watch, and this will may become apparent today or more likely perhaps over the next few days, is whether the EU judges these proposals to be good enough to enter formal negotiations before the EU summit. So there, you know, there is a process where they go into the terrible jargon, but they go into this thing called the tunnel where nobody is meant to say anything outside and they have kind of, they stay in a room and try and hammer out a deal. Uh, that hasn't been happening. The only contacts between EU and UK negotiators have been have been technical in nature. Mm. So the question now is, are they going to get into serious? Do, does the EU feel there's enough there to talk Turkey in the run-up to the summit? Certainly, this it it would appear at first look that there's a lot of difficulties with this, and a lot of EU red lines would be crossed. A lot of Irish red lines would be crossed. So yeah, what are sources close to the Irish government? Shall we say saying? Um, they see a lot of problems with the proposals. Um, they see a lot of difficulties. Uh, there's the issue of the time limited backstop, the the element of it to do with regulatory uh, alignment, and there's a problem with customs controls and separate customs territories. Not only the not only the technicalities of that, which is the way Boris Johnson has 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 talked about it as a technical problem, but also the politics of it. You know, it, it's splitting up the island. It's cre- it, it's creating a political divide between the two sides. Is this a serious offer? Do you think? It doesn't really look like it. Um, so then we come down to the situation where he has promised, pledged, yeah. um, that Britain's going to leave. UK is going to leave the European Union by October twenty first. But we know that this law is yeah. in place, passed by Westminster, um, to prevent a no deal exit without yeah. Parliament's approval, at least. So how do you square that circle? I don't know. Is the is the straight answer to that? Uh, as I say, the next question is whether the formal negotiations start between the EU and the UK on this. Uh, if they do, can anything be put to the summit? I think we're a long way off anything going to the EU summit by way of a deal. So therefore, as you say, the focus then moves on to to, to that issue. Um, 
All right. And of course, all I, of that comes post the budget, doesn't it? Uh, it does. The budget's been delivered next Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, and all of that uh, is going to happen afterwards. So it's a bit of a stab in the dark to some degree by Pascal Donoghue. It is. I, I guess, you know, could you have made an argument for delaying the budget? Maybe you could. Well, there's a deadline, isn't there? Uh, there, there is a deadline for, for submitting countries. stuff to the EU. Maybe a bit of flex in that. But the thing is, look, you could delay it till the start of November and there could be an extension to Janu- the end of January and, and, you know, and you could be you could be in the same position now, not, not not knowing what's going to happen. And I think the government wants to put forward the view that, you know, Brexit or no Brexit deal or no deal, that Ireland will continue, will continue to run its own business and will deal with whatever happens. And I think they were a bit uh, miffed by the uh, ESRI suggestion that there might need to be an emergency budget next year if there is a no deal Brexit, because I think the point of the budget the minister is going to put forward, and the reason it's so tricky, is that he wants to have a budget for all seasons. He wants to have a budget if there is a no-deal Brexit, one that stands if there's a no-deal Brexit and one that stands if there isn't. Mm-hmm. And the bit that flexes is the budget goes from surplus to deficit under, under you know, depending on which scenario yeah, sure. you're in. Now, Pascal Donoghue flagged very clearly, it seemed to me, that there yeah. would be no income tax uh, reductions in yeah. this budget. And yet, Leo Varadkar uh, seemed to slightly open the door to that prospect um, so are they at idem on this issue or is there a different philosophy at play here? Yeah, interesting interesting question. Um, and of course, we, we have a general election on we the do. horizon possibly next six months, nine months. We do, and there's no doubt that Fine Gael will want to present themselves, or one presumes they'll want to present themselves in the general election as the party that will cut your taxes as well as other things that they'll promise to do. Um, and, and certainly there has been you know, speculation that the Taoiseach has, has taken the view that we should maybe try and do more on this budget than the minister the minister wanted to do. But the public statement is that they are at idem. Uh, and it does appear from what the Taoiseach said today uh, that he's kind of pulling back a little bit on what he said last week, that we aren't going to see a huge amount. Could we see t- tinkering around the edges uh, of the tax system, the standard rate tax ban and the like? We could. I don't think it's going to be very significant for people. Uh, it hasn't been hugely significant the last few years, so it'll be less than that. So I'm not sure that anything anything people will notice. I don't see how they can go into the next election without people feeling as if they're getting a few bob back into their pocket. There has to be a feel good factor. Yeah. And if if you know if things just stay the same, then people are going to want change. Surely. Yeah. They may try and do something in kind of specific areas like childcare, for example, mm-hmm. uh, by extending schemes or extending payments there to put a bit more cash as you say, back into people's pockets. That is, that is one thing they could decide to do. And we're also uh, told that there will be no increase for pensioners, even though there will be a package of measures for yeah. pensioners. There will be no, you know, extra five or a week or We're told, told there won't be a five or a week. I would expect that there will be increases aimed at specific groups, uh, less well-off groups in society, for example. Uh, you know, you wouldn't rule out the pensioners yet. They always seem to get their way in the end. But well, they, they tend to vote, so they're a powerful lobby. Absolutely. It doesn't look like there'll be the five euro across the board. And I suppose there's an issue of kind of parity here. So there's been a bit of a balance that they've tried to strike between welfare pensioners on one side, taxpayers on the other in the last few budgets. If you're giving nothing to taxpayers, you can't, you know, they can't perhaps be seen to give too much to pensioners either. Right. OK. Um, anything for entrepreneurs or businesses likely in this budget? Um, nothing. I. I. Not. Nothing huge in 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 the overall business sense. I think there may be something on the entrepreneurs' agenda. Um. There's been a big push from business lobby groups to extend the reliefs available to entrepreneurs. Um. Uh, to make share option schemes a bit more attractive, for example, uh, and to make the incentive 
for under which people invest in um in uh, in, in in companies more uh, more attractive and this is really i guess designed at not for your average SME, but for the kind of the faster growing, maybe often text-based SMEs, the ones that can scale in the jargon very quickly that might create large numbers of jobs. And I think this may be set in a kind of a post-Brexit context that the incentives for these companies are pretty good in the UK. Uh, lobbyists here kind of point to the UK and say, look, investors can, can, can invest up to 10 million over their lifetime there and get, get a very good capital gains tax relief on it here compared to 1 million here. Uh, so th- I think that there could be some movement in that arena. That said, we we have heard about that in the last few years and not a lot has happened, but perhaps that might be the year for that. The other one to watch is the carbon tax, of course. Mm. Now, this is a tricky one. For the Climate change is high on the agenda now. Yeah, this is a tricky one because they've committed in their strategy to do something uh, on this. Uh, there's cross-party consensus in the Joint Oireachtas Committee to move to a tax of €80 Euros a tonne by 2030. We're at €20 Euros now. Um, the government put off doing anything last year because it wanted to reach this consensus and now the consensus has been reached. It's hard for them to avoid it, but there's no doubt, anytime I write about this, there is no doubt that people, even and, and even though relatively small amounts of sums of money would be involved, that people do feel a bit sore about this. They do feel, and this is yet another tax. They do feel this has been landed on the middle the middle ground that pays a lot. And, and there's also a bit of resentment in rural Ireland where, you know, people have to drive more and one of the things that's going to go up is the cost of fuel. So this is a tricky one. But the haulage industry as well, which is going to be heavily exposed to Brexit. Yeah, and if there is one thing that might maybe stay the minister's hand, certainly in terms of the amount that he puts the tax up, that perhaps is the thing because the haulage industry does face, uh, does face huge problems, okay. potentially in a no-deal Brexit. All right, well, we shall find out all on October 8th when uh, Pascal Dunne, who stands up at sure. the stall at 1pm... Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Laura Slattery and Cliff Taylor. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 